In part one, we dug in to talk about how well we are doing eating nose to tail and to value the whole animal in the big picture. We spoke about supply chain blips, the data and animal and environmental waste. In this episode, we continue our conversation to discuss the great nutrients that liver and other nutritious and delicious offal have to offer and talk about the ethical omnivore, the book, the community and great recipes that can inspire us to eat more nose to tail. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to part two of our conversation about offal and the joys and benefits of eating nose to tail. Joining me are Kate Wingett and Grant Hilliard, who are both wonderfully knowledgeable people with deep knowledge and understanding of the animal value chain and how it currently does, and perhaps does not, work for human health, animal well-being and the environment. Grant is the co-owner of The Butchery Feather and Bone in Sydney and co-author of The Ethical Omnivore a practical guide and 60 nose-to-tail recipes for sustainable meat eating. Kate is a veterinarian who works in animal biosecurity in New South Wales and she is currently completing her PhD on the role of the Australian sheep meat system in achieving food and nutrition security with a focus on monitoring production and consumption of products from the value chain. So it seems across the board there really is lots of scope to value offal more highly to make the most of every animal raised and slaughtered, to honour them as well as the environments and resources used to produce them. If that production is done well, it can enable animals to enjoy a good life and to contribute to regenerating soils and biodiversity along the way. And I think as you've both said in different ways, an animal that's had a good life is likely to be more delicious and more nutritious, it seems. So let's talk now about offal and its nutrient composition. Uh, and why this is so important in terms of human health and through the lens of nutrient waste. Animal products, especially red meat, super important for protein and iron. It's bioavailable and readily absorbed by the body. But of course, as Grant's just said, many people can manage their lives as vegans and be super healthy as well. There's certainly not one thing that fits all for all. Grant, I was going to ask you of the animals you source and the offal they offer, if you'd like to suggest one or two particular types of offal or cuts that you understand offer really high nutritional benefits, but I think perhaps we've covered that, have we? You know, we, we, we try and sell what we get. Um, you know, we get tongue, heart, liver, kidney, and then there's others which are still considered, uh, other parts which are still considered awful, but, you know, like we've spoke about diaphragm or the hanger steak, tail. In pigs, it's a bit different because the whole animal comes to you. It has, you know, feet and and head intact, which is um, which is obviously different. And we offer a lot of the offal from from those pigs for sale from all the animals, actually, for human consumption. And then if they're getting near the end of their life, that's when we dehydrate them, and then they become dog food if we haven't managed to sell them for human consumption first. What about the cost of the great offal cuts? I know it's a huge spectrum, but. Of the the offal and associated cuts that you offer, how 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 does the cost of those cuts compare with primary and secondary cuts of meat 
your butchery? Oh, they're cheap. Can you give us a ballpark? Yeah, they're the, they're the cheapest cuts. Rarely over, rarely over twenty dollars a kilo. In fact, none over twenty dollars a kilo, except for possibly uh, brains might be a bit over twenty. And if I ever ever saw sweetbreads, uh, they would be over twenty dollars a kilo. But the only time you see sweetbreads is when the abat- the abattoir has failed to steal them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is a really important point because often those of us who you know, thinking, working, supporting sustainable food systems innovation, you know, and talking ethical meat. Sometimes it can be a sensitive space in terms of food security and food food affordability and and vulnerability of people. Sure. And so I just really wanted to, to dig into that about the matter of affordability. Offal is really, really good for you and it's really, really affordable. So, so thanks for sharing that. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Both the cheapest and the and you need less of it too. So so you know you really the portion size is going to be small. So it becomes like two dollars a serve. Mm. And if you're getting really good quality mints and really good quality sausages, which can also be really quite affordable, yeah. they are very likely to incorporate high nutrition offal within them. So that's a, a key message. <laughs> um, Kate, Kate, you've shared some fascinating findings from your research about the nutrition profile of offal vis-a-vis the carcass of the lamb. Um, I know it's all part of a model and we've we've all alluded to it in the conversation so far, but I just didn't want to lose the richness of, you know, the research you're doing. It's all part of a model and, in, and I was wondering if in a bit of a nutshell you can tell us what your research has found about the nutrient profile of offal in comparison to the carcass or meat. Yeah, and certainly the liver is the powerhouse and doing most of the heavyweight lifting in this space. Um, I think... And as I said, it has iron, folate and B12. And then relatively, you know, we've seen, we see things like the kidney, um, the kidney and liver together have got about a quarter of the iron um, and those sorts of things. So I think the other thing that we do see is that there is quite a diversity in the nutrient distribution Cross offal, which you know is a, a cornerstone of good health, is to eat yeah, a diverse diet, um, not only just in the food groups, but also within those food groups, it's important. So you know you can really diversify your diet by eating brain, eating liver, eating tongue, um, as well as your carcass meat, and eating those kidneys. And you're going to get protein-wise, brains a bit different. The white offal, what they call white offal, is a bit different to the red offal, um, which is purely based on how it looks. So intestines and brain are, are white offal and the rest is red. The red offal's all got sort of similar protein levels to muscle, which makes sense. Um, uh, but there is a, a, a real diversity in um, the fatty acid composition um, and also um, the micronutrients, so the vitamins and minerals. So well worth um, exploring for the folk who are looking at meeting their needs in more environmentally and animal welfare-friendly ways and using more of the carcass. Um, It's not always reaching for your leafy greens, um, for your folate and those sorts of things. There's other ways to do that. Yeah, that was something that really surprised me. The folate really leapt out at me because I'm always banging on about folate in in leafy greens and what you have to do to be able to make the folates bio-accessible. So um, I uh, I particularly picked up on that. Um, I just want to just read out uh, one of the take-home summaries you, you shared because I just think it's so rich in such a good summary. Offal offal contains absolutely or relatively more vitamins and minerals key to public health compared with the carcass and accounts for approximately 10% of the edible products of a lamb by weight slash protein. If offal ends up going to pet food or rendering for meat bone meal, there is a negative impact on the amount of vitamins and minerals available for human consumption and this may impact on the health of Australians. 
Also, the environmental impact of producing one kilogram of carcass meat increases by 11%. So that's sort of the matrix of the impact of the waste, if you like, if we if we weigh too heavily on the meat and not use the offal. So it was the micronutrients and the key vitamins and minerals where the results are really just a, just as you've just said, super amazing. And liver is absolutely the must the must take home star performer. Are there particular groups or parts of the population that you'd just like to comment upon in in terms of to whom these nutrients are perhaps especially critical to and for? And obviously, gender specific, age specific, anemia is a big issue for different people at different stages of their life. Yeah, and uh, anyone who's growing, whether it be a woman of reproductive age who's yeah growing a little person inside them um, or a child themselves who are growing uh, are vulnerable and also our elderly um, may often have reduced appetite um, so they don't feel like sitting down and eating a you know a, a big meal um, and so or cooking, yeah, and and there's also we start to get with elderly people the the issue with actually just eating and swallowing um, and chewing up the food. So they're they're our most vulnerable groups. I, the last National Nutrition Survey in Australia was done 2011-2012. The results uh, released. One thing that surprised me was that 14% of men over 70 who are living by themselves have inadequate protein intake. And I think in a in a world where we've, we've got so much protein, as I say, we, we export the vast amount of protein that we grow in Australia. That was really quite shocking for me. Um, 25% of Australian women, based on um, a report from the World Health Organisation from 2011, 25% of pregnant Australian women are anemic, 17% of women of reproductive age who aren't pregnant are anemic, and 15% of children between six months and five. So, and globally, pregnant women. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that in your thing. I thought that was interesting. And just on that uh, subject with children who are not getting sufficient micronutrients in utero or in the early stages of life. I mean, that has a lifelong impact on their organ development and their ability to to develop, doesn't it? That's it, yeah. So we have low birth weights with anemic women um, and, uh, yeah, flow-on effects um, with, yeah, um, with physical and mental development um, for, for the society. So, and that's why it is one of the micronutrients along with iodine and vitamin A that the World Health Organisation track globally. You know, we've got... 2018 and COVID is likely to have worsened this situation. 13, more than 13.5% of Australians experience food insecurity. And we've also got, and 3.9% of those people had severe food insecurities. I, I was quite surprised at those levels myself. Um, and uh, so I, I think when we're looking at all these things and food security access, um, which involves being able to physically get to the shops, which is probably a, an issue for the elderly perhaps, mm. um, or people without motor cars who are living in suburbs, things like that is, is one. Or people who are living or, remotely. Yeah, and remote communities, yeah, yeah definitely. Access to food um, and also access includes affordability. So, um, yeah, there, there's certainly things that we can look at there that offer could potentially help to alleviate some of those areas. Yeah. Just one other fact I found that leapt out at me is probably just uh, common sense to both of you, was that I, I was so interested just to be reminded about how important the liver and the brain are in terms of their nutrient density of um, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids that everyday consumers like me perhaps more commonly associate with um, oily fish and nuts and so forth. So that that was a, that was a, a really interesting tip for, you know, other choices. 
Okay, we've already spoken about um, bioaccumulation. I was I had a whole section of sort of you know intriguing mm. things to chat about there, um, and, and um, I think and both of you have spoken about that. And obviously, different production systems over time will contribute to bioaccumulation of heavy metals and things differently, and hopefully help solve the problem. But let's talk about the virtues of older ruminants from a nutrition perspective. Grant, uh, uh, delicious and nutritious. Uh, you've already spoken about how the older the animal, the more micronutrients accumulate in, in the animal. And, Kate, in some of your papers, I think you've, uh, uh, there was a great little snippet about how iron concentrates in muscle meat as animals mature and, and the, you provide a snapshot that there's something like two times as much iron in a serve of mutton compared to lamb and that a mutton leg has up to nine times more iron than chicken breast. <laughs> so I thought those were really useful sound bites. The older the animal, the more unusual the cut, the longer it takes to trim, prepare and, and slow cook, the more delicious. Perhaps that, that's all a nice uh, sort of segue into talking about what we as consumers could be choosing more of when we shop and then to talk about some great recipes and tips and other final ideas from the ethical omnivore and more. To go there, Kate, you suggested some really great questions for our discussion. You can either ask Grant them directly or I can. <laughs> Would you like to? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, I, and I guess I'm working at the the other end of the chain, um, looking at some from that farm perspective. So I was, I was interested, Grant, in um, what you see as the, the drivers of people purchasing animal source food. Um, and uh, Generally? Yeah, gen yeah. Generally. Well, still, I mean, while it's clearly clearly true that there's a trajectory of, of reduced or there's a sort of an attempt to sort of reduce meat consumption in, in a whole range of diets um, and for a whole range of people, the 90% of people still eat um meat products or animal products in some form uh, most of the time. So it's a pretty big catchment, really. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, there are more vegetarians now by, by percentage of population than there were before, and uh, and probably teenage girls making up a huge percentage of, of, that, of that cohort, although they're the ones we see 10 years later often coming to the shop. I think a lot of it is really cynical at the moment. I think large companies sort of saying they're stepping away from meat production because of its environmental footprint, I think, is, is sort of almost one of the laziest, most cynical sort of ways of addressing the issues of not just food insecurity but food sovereignty because who are who, who are the producers of that of, of those meat substitutes enormous companies producing ultra processed food i mean it's it is a it is a con of the highest extreme you know that you will get rid of eschew all of the meat products because because why because of its 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 uh environmental footprint Certain production systems have enormous environmental footprints, but tell me of any production system that doesn't. They all do. The, qu the question is addressing what the consequences are and how you can either ameliorate or work with the consequences of production. As usual, we are sold the most seductive, simple solution. And, and that largely is in the service of capital, not in the service of human nutrition or equity, uh, about who gets that food as well. I mean, the, the, you know, food is the most political of all things. It is who who grows it, how it's distributed, and who gets to, who gets access to it. If you if you looked at that, you can really address every sort of social system that there is. So, why why are we sort of uh, moving away from meat? Because basically, we're we're looking at a 
what we take as average are largely American systems of intensive production, which which simply can't be universalized. And most of the research around, you know, the meat, the you know, the the um, dietary we we're talking about it before, the nutrition guidelines will be based around an animal that spent the last seven months of its life in an intensive feeding operation. It is a very different product. And, uh, you know, the, the lack of differentiation, and with that comes, you know, sort of blanket statements about, well, it takes five trillion litres of water to produce one kilogram of meat. I mean, uh, you know, based on what system, mm -hmm. there is simply no nuance in the discussion at the moment, nor, nor is there any great attempt to, to sort of offer nuance. What we're being sold is is, oh, well, you don't have to worry about that because we've got a great technological fix for it, you know. Um, it, it's sort of a, it, it's a human sort of weakness that that we don't really want to do the work to, to find what might be a more complex solution. We're much more liable to sort of say, yes, that's the thing, we will, we will have fake meat. Fake meat will solve all these problems that will produce all the protein we need. And those crude sort of uh, understandings of what meat contains, as, as the research you've done, Kate, illustrates that the micronutrient content is at least as important as the pure protein contents and the gross nutrient contents in there. It's the micronutrients that are the triggers for all the enzymal action, the, the metabolic processes that our bodies re re require. And it's no coincidence that that the the biggest disease issues in the world at the moment, notwithstanding COVID, are non-communicable, uh, preventable diseases that are effectively or essentially metabolic in, in nature. Uh, type 2 di diabetes, which used to be called adult onset diabetes and had to be renamed simply because so many children started developing it. Now, that's, that, is a purely, that is purely the result of diet and living practice it's, it's, and the wrong, the wrong food. I mean, it, it, it really couldn't be simpler than that. But, and it's so telling. Industrialised food production systems, they are not based on the, the desire for equitable, nutritious food production and distribution. I mean, it's one thing to talk about, about food security. A prisoner has food security. They don't necessarily have food sovereignty. And so being able to choose and access food Produced in a certain way is really the crucial thing. It's a bit like saying jobs for all. Well, there are dehumanizing jobs for everybody. There is no, you know, that we should be able to be a little more ambitious in our demands that people should be entitled to work that actually has dignity in it. It's no surprise that those industrial food production systems, you know, offer work that is almost the most dehumanizing being around animals that are in a, in a comprom highly compromised state and the, the people that work with them are also, both in health outcomes and emotional and physical health outcomes, are also highly compromised. You know, if we're going to talk about food as a as a vehicle for change, we have to be able to look at the full consequences of that, and that includes, you know, the people that work with it, who help deliver it, the, the meat carter, the person who works at the slaughter slaughterhouse, the the farmer, clearly, and what I don't like to call consumers, but people who are at the end of that chain who feed back. You know, I think the idea that we're consumers is is a is a way of pacifying and infantilizing us, which I find really sort of offensive because we're actually much more capable of being much more active than that. And and that to me is a really crucial step if you're if as someone who consumes two or three times a day, you've got an enormous potential to to affect the outcome of what what gets produced. Assuming of course that you have the wherewithal to you know um, to to be able to access it, 
And that's the question. Where, where is the access coming from? It's just sort of chip in there. Um, the work that Kate does and people like Professor Robin Alders, mm. you know, in One Health Global Health sort of frameworks just really shines the light on the importance of small-scale animal producers and peasant farmers and women farmers and, and, and a whole spectrum of food sovereignty underrepresented food producers who produce something like 70% of the food we eat uh, when you look at the developing world and middle-income families. So More of it, I think are fed by farms that are less than 10 acres. I think I'm hearing a little bit of backlash. <laughs> backlash. At that fabulously interesting statement by Epicurious recently who came out. So for listeners, Epicurious are the huge digital food brand owned by Condé Nast, you know, who are gastronomes and, you know, we might say elite food consumers and all the rest, who came out and announced that it would no longer publish recipes using beef due to the environmental impact of cattle production. Laura and Grant in their recent newsletter uh, take uh, a very well-considered aim at at just at, at the lack of uh, nuance and uh, consideration of the complexities that Grant's just spoken about there. Kate, uh, has Grant sort of answered your question about the key drivers of how consumers on the floor buy meat? Do you think it's like, I think I think you were also speaking to questions of price, convenience, you know, the sort of prosaic but everyday things that <laughs> shape our lives as well, as well as being food citizens. What do you think, Grant? Is, is price a key driver? Is convenience a key driver? Yes, it is. And sorry, I probably didn't answer your question, Kate. No, no, but it's all part of a bigger, it's all part of the same uh, system, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the problem. You know, you pull one little thread of the food system and uh, everything is so stacked that uh, it all comes tumbling out. So the perception of price, I think it's, it's you know, we were just talking about a portion cost of, of liver at around $2 per serve. I mean, I can't think of a food that you could get for $2 a serve. It's it's interesting that you know that chicken nuggets and things. It's a denatured process. It's a denatured thing, despite sort of people's lack of squeamishness of seeing whole chicken carcasses. And and it is a sort of a weird anomaly, Kate, isn't it, that we don't mind seeing chickens rotating on a rotisserie and thinking how delicious that is. But uh, we do pigs on spits quite a bit, and we get a lot of grief for that. And you know, people just think it's absolutely grotesque. But not children, interestingly. Children are very. Um, accepting of it and you know they poke the eye and <laughs> in the way that children you know curiosity uh yeah but also an incredible sort of accepting things at at really just the face value too you know Grimm's fairy tales are if you pull them apart they're horror stories a lot of them but we told them to children as salutary tales of of, of uh death and 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 mayhem um i i think not a lot of people agree with me around this, but I think that the government has an enormous role to play. I think it is being driven by consumers a demand for more transparency in the in the way their food is produced and where it comes from. And governments are not playing along. They are absolutely beholden to large producers and the they only the their ears are only open to the larger producers. They are not in, at all interested in 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 the value of small producers yet, as you alluded to. Uh, people with 10 acres, I think, or less feed something like 80% of the world. In And, um, you know, yet we are all about uh, getting larger, larger and larger production systems, which is, which is really just the colonial attitude of only thinking about surface area. We don't think of a farm as a three-dimensional productive enterprise. We think of it as a two-dimensional. We talk about it as a two-dimensional object. Uh, it's 100 acres. I mean, what does that actually mean? It, it covers 100 acres in a particular sort of thin film, but 
obviously the depth of its productive capacity is just not even looked at in that in that terms and and, and it's really in four dimensions because it's operating as a three-dimensional productive object in time until you can have sort of at least uh, that sort of idea informing agricultural environmental and water policy and health policy all at once you will never get coherent agricultural policy because it sees it as siloed activities mm. We still think of ourselves and we're encouraged to think of ourselves as outside natural systems. It is a completely uh, ludicrous idea. We, we are embedded in them, yet we pretend that we're not. And, and, our, and most of our policies are based on an idea that we're somehow separate from the productive systems that give rise to us and, and also nurture us. So it's a fundamental problem of, of how you frame, frame the issue and we need governments that have the foresight to be able to reframe that these discussions within that sort of parameter of understanding we are embedded in this and we've got nowhere else to go and that we have to respond in a very meaningful way to the challenges understanding that what we do is essential to those processes it's a call and response loop you know we are as affected by the environment as the environment affects us so that is it's a too, I think. And so, so in one sense, I'm hopeless about it. But in another sense, I think we can change, you know, the, the capacity to change and change quickly is, is really, um, is the thing that heartens me. Yeah. And we are, see- and we are seeing it all around. Yes, we are. We, and you see it in soils. You go to farms that have had, had a different sort of productive uh, manage or pr- uh, management system in place for, say, two gener- or one generation, 20 years, which a bit less than a generation, really. Um, and the changes in in that in that environment are profound in that time. So, you know, the powers of, of self self organizing systems, providing we let them happen, uh, are immense. Um, but the missing art, the missing sort of thing is our is is our human understanding of it, and also, and we start we talked about it right at the beginning is actually access to the genetics that can express themselves in those environments in in powerful and 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 meaningful ways so especially with ruminants and cattle especially we most of the cattle that that are grown in australia are not efficient at converting grass to meat and that would seem like a very simple thing for a ruminant to be doing but they're not what's largely that's not what's chosen for the genetics of cattle they're chosen to be bigger they're chosen for higher protein input diets, and most of the Angus in, in a, that's run in Australia, for instance, is is derived from very large American genetics, which are just not suited to mm. you know diverse rangeland production because they don't they don't do it. They only do five percent of rangeland production in America, so all of their all of their genetics essentially are going to finish up in a grain fed system with a high protein input. Mm. So we need genetics fit for place. That's something Robin Alders spoke about. Uh, in our conversation about specifically just that, about the need for a greater genetic variety, greater range of cattle types, uh, many many of which will need to be smaller and more nimble and able yes. to, to deal with heat and all sorts of other things much more efficiently and sustainably. Grant, thank you for that. That is a very rich offering uh, and, and really touches on mm. and goes to the core of a lot of what um, Kate's research is directly addressing, doesn't it, about public health consequences. And I loved your fourth dimension, which is really... Uh, intergenerational justice and equity and and the po- the possibility of a future and fixing up what's been damaged. Absolutely. Kate, would you like to go to your second question or do you feel that that's been touched on 
Yeah, I, I think we've um, we spoke earlier about food knowledge um, and how that's a key component to to any diet and the, the food food choices that you make. And and I think um, my, my third one there, Grant, I think you've just um, you've covered off on, which was how to promote healthy, um, sustainable meat choices. And uh, as you said, it's incorporating mm. the environmental and human health impacts um, across the whole value chain end to end. Um, including the waste at the end. What do we do with the stuff that we throw in the bin, which is... Not waste. Yeah, and, and, and it's, a, it's a massive issue. Um, it is. How we're going to manage that. And it, it's part of, as I say, we, you know, we're faced with the fact that we export so much of our products, so we're losing all that um, water and nutrients um, through export and then to lose any more through the garbage bin and in landfills, which is um, hopefully a fair distance away from um, where we're growing these animals, yeah, um, in suburban landfills because we've got more than 90% of people now live in, in urban areas in Australia. So how can we promote those healthy, sustainable meat choices? And as you said, Grant, that's it's beyond just business now, um, which it has been for years and years. And this is now a public health issue that the government uh, um, obviously have got some involvement in um, and they're, they're ramping it up, but it really needs to be viewed across that lens. Yeah. Yeah. Grant, before we head to recipes and tips and wrap-ups, do you have any quick questions for Kate? Uh, well, I, I think the work that Kate's doing is really crucial because there is there is still a sort of a core of cynicism that, that would... At, at a consumer level that that would say look you know all of this is just bullshit this you know i i can go down the street and buy uh, you know a dozen caged eggs and it's a dollar 99 and you know why shouldn't i and what what is the difference here what you know there's no real difference here it's not appreciable i certainly can't tell the difference uh you know and if and if you're positing that there is it's sort of a it's some sort of elitist pursuit, you know, which is, you know, divisive idea of that this is only available to a, to a small group of people. So, one, identifying what's being lost. I think that's that that idea of embodied nutrient cape is really important and yeah. that people understand that it is a mediated uh, fertility that you're seeing in any animal and that it's a concentration of soil fertility that that animal represents. And I don't think people really often make that connection that you are exporting water and nutrient every time you, you sell an animal and that it's part of an equation of production that you have to think about. And you also sort of mentioned that where does where does that waste go? If it if it found its way back as into fertility on that farm, then you would probably think it's not so wasteful because it's. I mean, there is no sort of waste in nature. Everything is used by the next thing. So it's only because of our sort of uh, siloed management of waste streams, which is a human invention. Let's face it, and um, which means that we don't take advantage of those of that nutrient, even even as a recycled nutrient. You know, even if it doesn't go through us directly, it finishes up, you know, the way we treat human waste is, is a perfect example. Most of it sort of finishes out up in the oceans, you know, which is, again, not thinking that we are embedded in this system in any sort of meaningful way that we are, that we are separate from it. Uh, I, I just think that the more we, the more angles that we can approach this from and including the research is really, really important to be able to, to sort of flesh out the picture of, of, and make it compelling, the case, sort of not just compelling, but unavoidable that we have to do things differently. You know, it's one thing to sort of say, uh, as many will say, well, look, you know, 
they challenge you to sort of come up with the perfect alternative system as though the one we have at the moment is not flawed. It's it, All the onus goes on to people sort of suggesting that, mm. that this isn't the best of all possible worlds. I think that's a really sort of unhelpful way to do it. So the more you can build up the case through research, uh, you know, nutritional findings at that level, but also human stuff, the more powerful the arguments will be and the more the harder it will be to be able to refute it in any effective way. Mm. And a wonderful way to uh, tell the story of the great research that people like Kate are doing is, is to tell the story through beautiful recipes and, uh, to, and to walk the talk with them. <laughs> so, so um, Yeah, that's right. So how can we better eat nose to tail? There's a ho- whole lot of things we can do in our everyday lives. And one of the wonderful things that uh, we can do is try new recipes, try new cuts. And Grant and Laura's gorgeous book offers lots of help there uh, with recipes for conscientious carnivory from Friends of Feather and Bone. And the book presents these recipes in in three sections, which I just really love. You know, one is pitched probably at people like me. I can do that, short and fat, fats. <laughs> and one is... Uh, short and fats, yeah. <laughs> and one is you could do this, longer and slower but not harder. Mm. And the third section is you should do this at least once. I, I just really loved it. I love the vibe. I love the sense of friends and grandmothers and families, wisdom coming together. Grant, how how has the book been received? And uh, are people coming in and asking, asking for cuts for specific recipes in the book? Yeah, people do cook from the book, which I find really interesting and heartening i mean we didn't really want to do a cookbook to be honest uh with there's sort of enough cookbooks in the world and the publishers sort of said you know i I might admire what you do but no one's going to read it you know like no one's no one's interested in that and where i sorry you've got to have some pictures and you've got to have some things that will tick the box for, for for christmas stockings pretty much pretty much so we sort of thought so how do we do that the 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 way that was the way through for us was to sort of say, well, what about the people that have that have sustained this business for the last fifteen years, and that and they're both our restaurant customers and our private customers, some of whom have been with us for as long as the business has mm. been operating, and they are a highly diverse group of people with a highly diverse backgrounds, and so when we thought, well, okay, we will get them to contribute why that's important to us is that we feel that we are in the process we are in the business of creating community and that we do that through food and that that is that is that is that that is really at base what we do we the, the trading of buying and trading of meat is the mechanics of it but what we're trying to set up is a, is a meaningful exchange between people who produce food and people who consume it but not just at those two points amongst people that that buy from us they talk to each other through uh, friends of feather and bone website which we don't really mediate at all um that's just really our customers talking to each other about what they do with what they buy and uh, and for us it's a pleasure because we don't we just sort of we're constantly surprised by what people <laughs> post um yeah and it 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 sets up, you know, a thing that mirrors what's happening in good, healthy soils. It's the transmission of information laterally. And I'm really interested the way that human communities work in the same way that those microbial communities work. I mean, should that be a surprise? Probably not. But it also means that producers that supply us can talk to each other. And that, to me, is a really sort of crucial thing because, you know, farmers are often extremely isolated and people who are farming, say, broadly regenerative ways are often particularly isolated within their within their communities. Communities. And I'm not sure if your experience, Kate, around are in orange is, you know, would mirror that. But I've yet to go to a farm out of 100 plus 
different farms that I've might have visited in the last 15 years and found that their immediate neighbour farms in the same way they do, which is very sobering in a way because it means that that form of connection, which was the heart of the rural communities, has been, well, it's for these particular producers, is certainly severed. Uh, for the rural communities generally, I think one of the, the huge sort of um, consequences of industrial production has been the removal of contact and community between producers and isolation for farmers is is an extreme sort of um, uh, symptom of that and the mental health issues that that farmers have really illustrates that lack of connection very clearly it's connection which sustains us all both physically emotionally and and mentally and and we try and we're using food to try and strengthen those connections and if a, if recipes exchange a recipe exchange which effectively is what this is it's sort of like a, a school fundraiser isn't it you know you get everyone <laughs> so well i mean you know that, that that's that's another community you know all the people that that send their kids to a school it's it's sort of folksy but but meaningful yes and what you're doing is and what you have done and are continuing to just expand is that you're enabling and supporting and absolutely you know a key player within a really amazing change ecosystem and you know infinite rhizomes of connection so so thank you for that mm, that's wonderful Kate have you uh, read the book or had a chance to cook from it I have read the book I haven't cooked from it as yet um, and, uh, no, nor have I I'm going to <laughs> yeah I, I think it's really good to bring that connection back with people who live in urban um, and, and even in the regions, I mean, out where I am, a lot more people who live in town um, than live out on properties and then the number that are living on commercial farms would be fewer still. Um, so I think highlighting that food sovereignty and how food is made. Um, I mean, you drive around Australia and you don't see pigs in the paddock, you don't see chickens in paddocks. Um, and I certainly know, you know, for my children who, you know, we came out here five years ago, um, up until then we'd only had a few trips to the country and it would have been rare that they would have seen sheep and cattle in the paddock as well. So I think that's another great thing that Grant and Laura's book does is it just goes, this is how we make food. Well, this is how these producers make food and just brings that into the home. That's right. Yeah, and that's, that's for us is really important, yeah. And you need people and you need animals in the landscape interacting sustainably and for, for healthy lands, waters and people, don't you, and food. Kate, um, we've talked about liver a lot today. I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you and your family regularly eat liver and how do you like to prepare it? Yeah, look, I normally get someone else to prepare it. I've tried it a couple of times myself and I'm not that great. I should persevere. Um, but, yeah, look, lamb's fried with bacon and gravy. Um, can't go buy it. Um, we went out for dinner on Saturday night. I'm not sure about pubs in Sydney, but most pubs out here on the central tableland certainly have it on the menu. Um, and, yeah, and, and my dad um, got lamb's fry um, for dinner. So I, I do the eat liver. I don't eat it all that much. Um, I think it's probably, as Grant said, you listen to your body and it does pack a mighty punch. Um, and there's times that I just sit down and go, yeah, that's what I'm going to eat today. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we we do um, we do liver. Um, we, we also like haggis and um, black pudding, um, which I guess is those sort of sausage versions that you, you're talking about there of, yeah, getting things in. 
and we were away on holidays at Christmas time and we went around the caravan park and offered our um, fried black pudding to people, didn't really tell them what it was, and most people said, yeah, that's good, I'd eat it again. So um, as Bert said, you can trick people into eating it. Do you, do you make haggis at home, Kate? No, I don't make it. No, no, as I say, I'm... Uh... Do you make haggis at home? <laughs> yeah, I, I have limited uh, culinary skills, um, but, yeah, certainly if we can buy um, haggis and black pudding... Um, um, we do, yeah. So tell me, could I ask you why you moved to the country? For the job, yeah. So getting, changing out of, yeah, private practice, um, which I was in a peri-urban area, which became extremely urban, high density um, on the outskirts of Sydney. And, uh, yeah, and then so, yeah, looking for something a little bit more public-focused. Right. Goodness, we've covered a lot. I was going to ask if you had any final tips or messages. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I guess... I guess for me, Anthea, and, and you've already touched on it and Grant has as well, that food systems are extremely complex. There's no one size fits all for anyone from the farm to the plate um, to the hospital bed. Um, and it's uh, and it, it's a temporal thing as well um, and acknowledging that things change over time. So we need more than one solution. And I think it's important not to throw away everything that we're doing at the moment as well. We've got to keep what's working and just change what's not. Mm, thank you. That's a fantastic wrap-up. Kate and Grant, thank you so much for speaking uh, with me and with each other. We've had a, a, long and, a, a long and fabulous conversation, I think. It's just, it's just been such a pleasure and um, so great to learn from you. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to eating more offal-rich sausages and mints and sourcing it really carefully, and I'll be trying quite a few recipes from The Ethical Omnivore. And, Kate, I'm looking forward to learning more from your research. Um, where, how's the PhD going and is the end date in sight? It is in sight, yes, yeah, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> well, wishing you very well for the final big push, Kate, and thank you, Kate and Grant, so much for speaking with me and just most importantly for what you do. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Grant. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.